Capita and This is Planet Ed have launched the Early Years Climate Action Task Force, which will explore how the country can support young children ages 0 to 8 to flourish, despite facing the impacts of climate change. Here is the third public listening session, held on December 12, 2022. Welcome, everyone. Thanks very much for joining the third public listening session of the Early Years Climate Action Task Force. This task force is charged with drafting the Early Years Climate Action Plan for the United States, and you can find out more at either capita.org or thisisplaneted.org. This is the third in a series of listening sessions highlighting the particular vulnerabilities of young children to climate change and opportunities for the early years sector and the climate sector to take action. It will hear from parents and guardians, children, caregivers, pediatric healthcare providers, subject matter experts, and grassroots advocates. The task force's work will also highlight the experiences of indigenous and native communities, people of color, those on low incomes, and those living in particularly climate vulnerable communities. Today, we also wanted to wish, want to wish and gratefully acknowledge the task force work supported in part by the W. Clement and Jesse V. Stone Foundation. I'll turn this over to my co-chair, Anton Ford. Thank you, Diana, and welcome to everyone. Today, we have a timely panel to help us understand how will climate change impact early care and education systems. We'll hear from each panelist first, and then the task force members will be able to ask questions. We are delighted and are joined by Corey Zimmerman, who is the Chief, Chief Program Officer at Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University. And then Sarah Mickelson, who is the Director of Early Childhood Initiatives for Harris County, Texas, where she leads work to support children and their caregivers, primarily through childcare and, er and other early learning focused strategies. Diane? Uh, we'll also hear from Yasmin Avinci, the executive director of the National Head Start Association, Lois Kendrick, the president of Flora Family Child Care Home State Association, whose mission is to represent a united voice on behalf of all children and to promote and encourage quality professional health family child care. So thank you for joining us today. And we will begin with Corey Zimmerman. Hi, thank you for having me today. Um, I'm gonna share three ideas from the cutting edge of science that can help us understand how the effects of climate change are a growing source of adversity for young children's development, which can in turn inform how our early childhood systems can be part of building climate resilience. So excited to join with all of you today and be able to share as part of this listening session. Okay, so first science idea. Um, what happens from prenatal up through age two sets the foundation for a lifetime of learning and health. Another way to say that is that human development is the product of genes by environments by timing. In the first years of life, our brains and bodies, <clears throat> including our immune, metabolic, and respiratory systems, hold on, can go through a rapid period of development. During this time, these systems are exquisitely sensitive to inputs from the, from the environment. Exposure to air pollution or lead or experiencing toxic levels of stress shape the developing brain and body in ways that will have implications across the lifetime. The science is familiar to those of us in the early childhood sector. It's why we champion this science in particular. It's why we champion the importance of investing in the early years, because we know what happens in the early years matters. 
I wanted to ground us here first though, because the science can offer all of us across all the fields we may come from, an understanding of why young children are uniquely vulnerable and with our help able to be resilient to the effects of climate change. One could argue too that due to the importance of timing, we should have a comprehensive climate agenda that doesn't just recognize, but prioritizes young children. Okay, second science idea. The importance of buffering and protecting from adversity and the need to build resilience have been mantras of our field for over a decade. Primarily, we focus this work on the relationships surrounding a young child, yet that's left out of the story how upstream systems and policies and the built-in natural environment also can be sources of adversity that trigger a toxic stress response or resilience. Science is telling us it's still about the importance of caregiver and child relationships and where people live affects what they are exposed to, which in turn affects their maturing biological systems. In short, place matters. Yet, due to historical and ongoing structural inequities, the burdens of adversity created by place are not distributed equally. Instead, it's quite the opposite. The effects of structural, cultural, and interpersonal racism together and separate contribute to a complex mix of conditions that result in more exposure to toxicants, less access to green space, nutritious foods, and other basic needs. The effects of climate change are only going to compound that. So I'm describing a universal threat, but targeted strategies and, and disproportionate resources ought to be prioritized for those already most marginalized by society's structures. So seeing the built-in natural environment as having a role in children's development, by seeing that, we can begin to connect why the effects of climate change are important to address to improve the outcomes for young children. Okay, third science idea. So I wanna focus on a particular pathway through which climate change will affect children's development, and that is elevated levels of stress in young children and their caregivers. So the effects of climate change will also show up as loss of jobs because of economic transition or migration of animal species. It'll show up as more expensive food, lack of clean water, displacement and forced migration that's temporary or permanent. These are events that'll generate stress in the child, but also in their caregivers. And that's the science that our field knows best. We know about the effects of experiencing positive, tolerable, or toxic stress during development. We know about the importance of buffering and protecting the developing brain and other body systems, and how caregivers' own stress levels affect their ability to consistently provide responsive relationships. This is our field's work, and the effects of climate change over the next decade and generation are gonna shape what our work will be. So with that science in the room, I turn to how, how will climate change impact early childhood systems? Climate change is a top global trend for the next decade that I believe will have the largest impact on the early care and education field. It'll shape the lives of the children and families we care about. I believe we need to start planning for how the early care and education infrastructure will need to adapt to a changing climate, which includes the physical indoor and outdoor infrastructure. There's connections to curriculum and how we connect children with nature and classrooms. I also see ways in which early childhood systems could be part of the planning that cities and nations are doing towards climate adaptation. So, and then how can early childhood systems adapt to build resilience? We need to see how investing in early childhood infrastructure is a form of enabling the built environment to be a protective factor in children's development. To do this, we also need intermediaries who can help the early care and education field pull some of that newer funding that's available for climate action. We need to continue to seek ways to reduce stress for teachers and parents and caregivers, which includes increasing wages and improving their economic well-being. And we need to center the experiences of those who are already disproportionately experiencing the effects of climate change and ensure there's a just and equitable transition to this new future. 
So I'll end with, um, I believe that science is a tool that can help new and old allies come to this work and will inform how we might build policy that enables young children, their families, and the full early childhood sector to flourish in this next era of climate change. Thanks so much, Corey. And um, a reminder to our task force members to um, hold on to your questions because we will have a Q&A beginning um, after everyone discussed. You can also toss questions in the chat as you go as they um, occur to you. Um, next, we'll hear from Sarah Mickelson. Sarah? Hi, good morning or afternoon, I guess, depending on where you are, task force members. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you all here today. Um, as I think was mentioned earlier, I'm Director of Early Childhood Initiatives in Harris County, Texas. Harris County encompasses Houston in addition to other cities and unincorporated areas of Texas and is home to about 4.7 million people total and most importantly home to about 360,000 children age five and under. So Harris County, like many communities on the Gulf Coast and other coasts, lives with the realities of climate change every day. This ranges from the day-to-day -day impact of rising and falling temperatures to the impact in wake of catastrophic weather events. Most notably recently, Hurricane Harvey in 2017, where 36 Harris County residents lost their lives and thousands more continue to wait on disaster relief and feel the impact, even though this was over five years ago at this point, and the February 2021 winter storm where 43 Harris County residents died and nine out of every 10 Harris County residents lost power and two thirds of Harris County residents lost water. Um, nearly every childcare provider we talk to, just to say, of course, these events loom large on our county in general, and they loom large in childcare in general. My role is to help childcare recover from the pandemic. Um, as we go out and talk to childcare and early learning providers, though, these events actually come up more often or as often as the impacts of COVID-19. Uh, many providers had to close their doors for a long time and came back. Others are really still feeling the trauma of a weather event or disaster on their ability to care for children, on their homes where they provide care, on their childcare facilities where they provide care every day. Um, and what we hear when we go out to see providers is, is the need cited for our response to be better next time, to be more applicable to childcare providers, and to know that these, for providers to live knowing that they're not forgotten um, in these big weather disasters, but also they're telling us about the day-to-day -day realities of, of climate change every day. So I'm fortunate to be in the position to help think about how we can set up a system that responds differently next time. I am proud of the work being done in our region by both the county, the cities um, that we serve, and by local nonprofits and other businesses. Um, but we need more support and we need more resources to ensure that the systems that serve our youngest children can be more prepared and more durable in the future, as well as mitigate the day-to-day -day realities of climate change, which in our region range from seeing freezing temperatures for the first times during some months to it getting 115 degrees with 90 some percent humidity in the summer, which makes it really hard to care for kids, especially really uh, young children who of course feel the impact of those temperatures even more. So I have a few um, recommendations and calls to action for both the task force and just for us as a field in general about what we see on the front lines that needs to be done. 
first, I know we hear it in every early childhood conversation, but we need to fund the system to ensure childcare in particular has the financial resources that it needs to both be prepared and responsive to climate change. Without adequate financing, child care providers, which we know don't have a big savings account to fall back on, can't prepare for disaster in things like generators or um, the correct insurance. And they have little to no cash on hand to endure closure periods. And as I mentioned before, even when we have FEMA relief or disaster relief, it often takes years to come. So we need folks who have the financial resources to be able to live through and recover from disasters in particular. Um, in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, one of our local nonprofits, Collaborative for Children, found that nearly 40% of providers did not have flood insurance. Um, that's just one example of the way that not being able to afford these kinds of insurances ends up costing our field more in the long run. Um, second, we need to increase connectivity among and between childcare providers, families with young children, and government systems. One thing we saw through disasters is families are often left to navigate things on their own. Sometimes their young children are even left to translate on their behalf for disaster relief, um, and childcare providers are left in the same um, lurch. This can't begin to change until we elevate early childhood issues within state and local government, make this an issue within emergency management which I will note in Texas, especially as a local function of county executives and mayors, um, we would benefit from specific recommendations from this task force and others on how childcare can be integrated into emergency preparedness. Um, and lastly, we need to be forward thinking and also thinking about things, um, of course, disasters, as I said, loom large over our region, we also need to be able to be supported to think about just the day to day weather events that childcare experiences. So we are working on climate plan planning. My office is new. We also established an office of sustainability at the same time. So we've been able to work together to Corey's point to be part of climate plans and think about how childcare and young children are part of those plans. I'm also proud that the county is using ARPA funding to do some preparedness, including preparing an investment in facilities that thinks about how the physical locations where children are located can be better set up for day-to-day -day climate impacts. We hear from providers every day that they need new outdoor spaces that are shaded and have you know, room to keep kids outdoors, even in December when we're experiencing 85 degree temperatures and how um, facilities in general can be better set up for things like flooding or extreme heat and where there can be disaster preparedness plans. Um, so with that, I'll stop with those ideas, looking forward to the Q&A, and I just want to say I'm grateful that this conversation exists. Um, you know, we can't ignore the impacts of, of this on young children who are an extremely vulnerable population for climate change, and as a local leader, um, we would benefit from specific recommendations, advocacy in the form of more investment, um, and know that we can do more here. So thanks again for the opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you, Sarah. Um, next up is Yasmin Avinci. Yasmina, you're still muted. This happens all the time. I'm sorry. 
So I just wanted to second the appreciation for your starting the conversation and uh, look forward to actually the dialogue with the, with the task force. Um, I see many, many uh, familiar faces, some of the people whose lives were touched by Head Start one way or another, as Head Start children, as um, Head Start teachers, as uh, people who run programs. And so um, doesn't I don't need to remind you that ensuring children's health and safety has actually been a cornerstone of Head Start since its beginning in 1965. And now there's more evidence than ever that the conditions of the physical environments where children spend up to 10 or eight hours, eight to 10 hours a day impacts their health and safety. Um, and yet without regular appropriations for facilities funding, um, except in the cases of declared public emergency or disaster, many Head Start programs struggle to keep up with needed facilities improvements. Um, and the current federal processes to seek facility improvement funding are challenging, and they're not guaranteed to work every time. Um, as you know, Head Start serves low-income communities, we regularly have the fewest resources at our disposal to react to a crisis or to act preemptively, inherently putting us at greater risk than other communities. And later I'm going to mention just how by improving one structural barrier, the 1303 process, we can at least act faster to provide facility upgrades that seek to overcome the issues caused by climate change. So very quickly to go through some of the risks facilities being destroyed or damaged. And Head Start facilities are more susceptible to, to damage, to new damage, if they're not upgraded. And many Head Start programs right now are not upgraded because of the strenuous 1303 process, um, which gives them a disincentive to use funding from third-party partners. And then the lack of emergency preparedness support from state governments, and um, resources are usually only available after disasters have occurred and do not take into account the underlying issues caused by climate change, such as polluted air all year round. Um, so programs also face higher cost pressure dealing with the wide ranging impacts. Uh, for instance, the higher utility bills on, on hotter days. Um, and this again, increases the need for facility upgrades to include things such as filtered air conditioning, such as improved heating systems. Um, and um, as the climate changes, K-12 schools and childcare providers will experience more frequent closures due to the impacts of wildfires, um, not only from the encroaching fires, but also from planned power outages and smoke-related impairments to air quality. Our, our colleagues in, in California certainly had uh, quite a nightmarish time a uh, couple of years ago. Um, and when their closures of programs impacted students face a high risk of experiencing food insecurity, learning loss, and poor consequently poor academic outcomes. This sort of really got tested during the, during the COVID uh, epidemic, uh, the, the, these effects. Um, so physical health of children, you, you've heard from Corey and um, it's just kids have fewer days 
right now, then they can reasonably be outside playing in nature. Then they, you, then we all think is is good for them. And uh, the number of extreme precipitation days, which are at historic highs, the number of extreme storms, the number of heat waves, and I don't need to really tell you about the importance of play for young children. Uh, all that is being encroached upon by, by the climate change. So what can be done? Um, upgrading facilities is the number one thing that, that uh, we're advocating for. Um, for instance, um, school facilities and Head Start facilities in historically temperate regions may need to consider remodeling playgrounds with more heat resistant materials and shade structures or adding air conditioning systems right in, in the building, um, which some research has found to mitigate the negative impacts of Head Start of heat on student learning and academic performance. Additional modifications might include really hardening facilities to reduce the risk of catching fire in forested areas, adding air filtration systems to lessen smoke exposure, or even elevating structures along the coast to accommodate occasional flooding. So the problem for us right now, very concrete, is the 1303 process, which is slow and it's inconsistent across the country, painstaking for programs to submit. And they certainly cannot um, act preemptively, programs cannot act preemptively. And we're really forced to play catch up. Um, the solution that we are right now, NHSA has uh, has uh, produced a paper on this that really unpacks the the whole um, uh, system and points to things that could be made, changes that can be made that would sort of speed all that up. Uh, we have not heard back uh, from ACF. Uh, and and certainly hope that maybe this task force could uh, put in a word for it. Um, certain things. Um, the other the other thing that I'd like to just put on your in your thoughts is that the um, climate movement is better funded and more politically powerful than early childhood. And I really believe that tying the two together, the fate of caring for the land and the planet and caring for the children is potentially a very powerful reframe and a very powerful alliance that could really move us together. Um, for Head Start right now, and again, I, I hate to be coming to, from, you know, from the high end vision coming to the concrete, but right now, we have had programs who, uh, with the with the COVID money and so on, were looking to actually improve the facilities and upgrade them, and they are struggling with the 1303 process. Um, this is the uh, the Office of Head Start expects programs to utilize third party funding in connection with their facility pro projects. But that outreach is one of the items on the application checklist. And when third funding, party funding is proposed, as it has been quite a few times, 
by by Head Start program, the application process becomes even more complex and extended. Um, so that creates an incentive to request 100% of project funding from the Office of Head Start, so you don't have to worry about this lengthened uh, period because you're get you're actually getting money from um, from the community. And so um, the solution, again, right now, we're looking at, um, uh, you know, we're thinking that it's widely accepted that climate change disproportionately affects the most marginalized people, the families and the children. But um, I'm urging us not to be overwhelmed by the size of the entire issue, climate change issue but to look to address what can be mitigated. Uh, and that would be helpful. Your support would be helpful. Correcting the flaws in the system, like the 1303 process could be absolutely the lowest hanging fruit in the massive effort that you're undertaking. Thank you. Thank you, Yasmina. We really appreciate your, your comments. Finally, we'll hear from Lois Kedrick. Lois? Hi, I'm here. I'd like to say hello to the panel and thank you for allowing me the opportunity to speak with this world climate as changing from season to season. And even when a particular season comes around, it is unusual due to climate change. I also have lived in Florida my adult life and have witnessed how hurricane causes destruction in the lives of people and their health, as well as nature, animals, living organisms, and the earth. The experience I went through with Hurricane Ian was heartfelt, exhausted, had to wear many hats, a mother, a neighbor, provider, social worker, spiritual counselor. Yes, no one had control over this hurricane. Preparation was in place of having a backup generator. I even had seven five gallon cans I had to fill with fuel due to losing power for seven days. It was a challenging ordeal. A lot of gas stations had no generator to keep the pumps on. And the gas stations that were open developed long lines due to limited fuel for people to commute back and forth. I had the sandbags were filled at designated sand sites, but the key thing, you had to bring your own bags and your own shovel. Also, I had to transport these bags back to my home and place them at the door entrance. Child care facility was closed for four days due to the cleanup and no electricity. Yes, we did have running water, but very slow, and we was up under a boil water notice. Networking with parents using cell phones when you, could get, when you could get a call out, making sure that they were safe and if they needed supplies. Staying up all night. Lois, you've muted yourself somehow. Okay, I'm back. Um, networking with parents using cell phones when you could get out a call or making sure that they were safe and if they needed supplies as well. Staying up all night monitoring the news 
anchor, tracking locations using a battery weather radio, trying to track the hurricane location and the wind strength. What to expect from Hurricane Ian movements? We had to uh, place, we had to place the vehicle in front of the, the car in the house, regardless that we had shuttles on the wind on the windows due to the flying debris. Hmm. Listening to the crackling and the howling force wind sounds. I said out loud to myself and as well as my husband, Lord, you know, coming from a Christian background family, I didn't know if I was going to have a house to even hold a, to con continue to with my business or not. Well, and I began, began to walk back and forth, modern the surroundings afterwards, the long, slow, slow, slow moving hurricane finally passed. My roof was damaged, causing leaks inside the home, missing toys, playground much scattered everywhere. Missing playground equipment as well. Shade trees completely uprooted from the ground. Overhead sun protective shelter damage. Two protective fences were completely damaged. Roofers did come and put a tarp over the leaking part of it. Of my business that were impacted due to out-of-pocket expense repairs because my homeowner insurance does not cover the expense within homeowner policies. When my child care did open back up, some of the children did attend preschool. Now, due to the first responder parents that I do have, they work detailed shift within their job while their parents, while other parents' jobs was closed with severe structural damage. The family's housing environment was not safe to live in due to children's medical condition from the wet dampness of mold caused the family to relocate because of housing availability. My parents had a tremendous time trying to relocate and also had time trying to restructure and patch up where they actually did live or were living at the time. When the children did come back, they, uh, I did ask them, there was questions that I did ask of them of the devastation in the various communities that they actually saw. The class talked about how to stay safe in a storm. They drew pictures and explained what they saw. And as a childcare provider, I was able to see the expressions of their faces and their body movement identified by what they experienced. Yes, climate change do affect young children, as well as adults. And one thing I did learn from this experience and many others is to have a resource list. And that resource list is to have, to network with agencies and ask for, we need more grant funding because a lot of child care providers has to come out of their pocket. I did. And that's because in, my insurance does not pay for the, for the dam certain damages here that I'm able to, um, carry on and do what I need to do as a child care provider. I'm also too making sure that my parents are more aware and having the necessary tools that they do need during hurricane uh, season time. Also monitor the storm uh, weather station. And trust me, do not take storms lightly because each storm is totally different. When they begin to uh, the, the start brewing, the wind begins to change. 
the, the winds shifted, pressure builds up, and before you know it, you're into a devastation uh, uh, atmosphere. Also, I uh, noticed that networking, I had to network with various agents in, within my own community for looking for available material that keeps my business open. Also to make sure that I did an inventory checklist so that this way, not this year, I'm did, I did an inventory list to make sure I'm prepared for next year. Also too, my biggest thing doing, going through this year was staying focused. Mentally aspect what I'm talking about it because when when you're in the middle of a hurricane and you don't know what what's going to happen what you're going to endure you have to stay focused and I and um I just did say to myself this too shall pass and I, I just call my providers and ensure my parents we'll all get through this we are resilient people living in society and hopefully with this climate change, it will get better. But for as child care providers, we do, it, it takes a lot of resource to keep us up and running. And I appreciate um, this time. Thank you. Thank you. I will toss this back to Antoine. Thank you so much for your story. I really appreciate all of the speakers today. Uh, Diana and I, get, and I get a chance to ask the first questions, and then we'd love for you guys to be able to uh, put your questions in chat, and we'll call you out to ask your questions. I'm going to go all the way back to Corey. Um, Corey, I have a question for you. When you talked about stress, and we talked, we know the impact of stress on adults. Um, I was really impacted by that in terms of, um, do you have any comparison to that in terms of folks that are in the climate-safe environments versus non-climate-safe on children? Uh, and when it comes to stress, uh, and you can talk a little bit more about what that really true impact into their future learning. Oh, it's a great question. Um, so many different angles. Yeah, I mean, I think the pathway that we're familiar about talking with in early childhood is about the effects of stress on development and these ideas of that there's sort of positive level of stress, which we all, you know, young children need to go through in their development of learning to share toys, not get the cookie they want, you know, there's sort of a tolerable level of stress in development, which is about, you can go through something actually as in intense as a natural disaster, and it's about the role of having a, a responsive caregiver there who can help you buffer and bring your stress response system back down um, and kind of bring you back to baseline. And experiencing toxic stress is sort of being in that situation and not having the availability of a caregiver um, who can be any form, doesn't have to be a parent, but caregiver who can help you um, kind of bring that stress response and experiencing toxic stress is at the level that that carries on and persists. Actually, it's about that happening in a chronic way. Um, and so I think about it in the context of climate change that as, as we're experiencing, uh, and even listening Lois to your story, just the amount of calm that you were able to bring and the presence you were able to bring with caregivers and sort of having how, how much children's ability to thrive and come through in these situations will be the context and environment they're in and how can we help reduce the stress that families are experiencing and caregivers are so that they're able to be present and provide that consistent caregiving. And I think the story that we've told in the field for the last 15 years has focused just on that, on the context of relationships. And I think what's so exciting about this work and some of the newer science is we're starting to talk about actually how the environment can become a source of adversity. Or if we talk planning and emergency preparedness that folks are talking about, 
it can become a source of resilience that then helps set up the caregiver, the context within which caregivers are providing the and creating those responsive relationships and conditions. And so to me, I think the your question about sort of climate different different geographies that are more or less affected, it's also about how well they're planning for that, um, for what's to come um, and how they can help that environment become a source of adversity. And we can think about it being a source of adversity or resilience. Um, oh, thank you so much. Diane, you want to jump out there and then we can start to uh, go down the uh, our panelists. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, I think this is a question for Sarah, but I'm actually interested in, in others as well. You, you mentioned, Sarah, the importance of ensuring that disaster preparation plans and emergency management um, agencies, which are generally local agencies, um, county or state agencies, um, are have have early childhood on their minds and are and are collaborating. Um, can you um, share? I, I think what I heard you suggest is that there's actually perhaps an opportunity um, for this task force um, to begin to um, maybe even develop some recommendations or um, ideas about how that should happen. Um, you mentioned your partnership. Are there things in particular um, that you think should be top of mind for those kinds of agencies? Sure, um, great question. I think that there are a, a lot of things, whether that's, uh, I guess, one of the, the beautiful and, and hard things about childcare is anyone with a child and is working often needs it. So I think that is both um, figuring out how you integrate childcare into plans for folks who are first responders. Lois talked about serving first responders in her childcare. I think there are others who maybe have providers who aren't able to remain open or who may you know, not, not know that. I think there's some local responsibility to say, hey, if your childcare provider is closed and you're, you're needed or you have to go to work or you know, whatever it is, where is the avenue for you to be able to have your child in a safe and um, and warm and caring environment. And then I think, you know, everything else to how can, how can child care and child care providers be integrated into things like when there are, you know, no water, when there's boil water notices, when there's, um, you know, food supplies and other disaster supplies in ways that schools may have kind of the be top of mind and front of brain for folks in emergency preparedness. I think child care needs to be integrated. Um, in the same way, and as well as just thinking about especially very young children with the, with that lens of emergency preparedness, I think we saw in even one-off events like the formula shortage, how um, local government or, or kind of disasters in general could be, we could expand our definition and, you know, put someone on the hook to actually respond to those things rather than have families really going it on their own. Great. Anyone else before we go down the, the list? Great. Appreciate that. Andrew, you got a question for uh, Corey? Yeah, so a quick question for Corey. Um, given that, uh, you know, quality early relationships, not just with the parents, but with the caregivers, the teachers, the other adults in the child's sphere, they not only buffer adversity when those episodes happen, but they actually build those skills needed to be resilient and to adapt in a healthy manner. So what are the top one or two policies that could practically build those pivotal social emotional supports in advance of the adversities that we're uh, expecting to come with climate change? Oh, great question also. Um, and I appreciate you have expertise in this area as well. Um, I mean, I think 
similar theme to what I think the two ideas I think that come to mind are one about how to, what are the different things and policies that help reduce stress on caregivers. Um, and I think in the, with the early childhood workforce that looks more like wages, um, also with parents and caregivers too. Um, but I think the, the big theme is how do we help reduce stress on caregivers so that they can show up and be present consistently in caregiving that we're hoping for. And then I think the other one is starting to expand out um, our thinking that it's a, it's about relationships and also about the environment and how those how the environment helps set up and enable and create enabling conditions for caregivers to be able to provide that kind of responsive caregiving that we're that we know is so important to helping build resilience. Um, and I think that's a newer it's a newer part of the story. And I think trying to figure out. Um, there's so many different avenues and ways that policies can go. Um, I have my own you know, sort of ideas or thinking, but I actually am really curious for some work to dig in more so to what are the set of policies really there that we know will connect through to early childhood outcomes. Um, yeah, those are the two two ideas I would suggest up front. Um, but there's so much more. We could actually talk about those from everybody's expertise there in the room too. Thank you so much. Um, Elizabeth, you had a question for Lois. Sure. Thank you, Lois, and all of the speakers. Um, and Lois, thank you for sharing your personal story. You mentioned um, as you were talking or sort of alluded to your own faith. And I, I know that in many communities, uh, faith communities can function uh, something like uh, mutual aid networks uh, in, in times of crisis. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how faith communities might be part of um, solutions in terms of building climate resilience and in, in the early childhood years? Well, there's there's a lot of uh, churches in the area. And the majority of the churches that I've known as far as building resilience is um, they pretty much focus on their congregation and what type of funding or, or grant funding that they do have in time so that they can try to service as many as many areas within their area as possible. Um, I I have there is a church that I have um, networked with as well as my own congregation, and we kind of like um, stepped out and um, went towards other organizations that was out there at the time of um, sharing um, um, uh, materials and resources for the for the community. And by me networking with them, I was able to also network with my parents and they was able to come out and um, get the necessary and the much needed materials as possible. So I, I think the churches does play a big part when it's dealing with um, within their own community itself or abroad. Um, but it's, it's just pretty much saying trying to get parents that cars has been damaged or no gas in the car, anything like that, trying to get much needed materials to them as possible. So yes, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's important for the churches to do that. And um, some has, and some weren't able to open due to the destruction of their buildings as well due to the hurricane. So I, I, I say, yes, it's, it's, it plays a big part in the community. Oh, thank you thank so you. much, Andrew. You had another question for Yasmina. Yeah, so um, one of the founders of uh, Head Start is known for saying that for children to develop well, someone's got to be crazy about that kid. Um, and so we recognize that there are many barriers to forming those foundational relationships and climate change will threaten them even more. So of all the great things that Head Start's already doing for children and their families, and, and you're, you're dealing a lot, um, what can we learn from the Head Start experience with regard to building those early relationships? That's a really good question. And and the quote from Yuri Bronfenbrenner, I have 
just used as many times and as in in as many situations as I could to encourage folks to uh, provide that kind of a one adult crazy about. Um, I think actually you're saying what can we learn from um, it's it's interesting from the history of Head Start. Um, Head Start really came out of communities. It 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 was people going into communities, getting the uh, communities excited about uh, hosting Head Start and uh, and actually um, you know fighting fighting to to have it uh, to have it there. Um, I think right now what we're learning is about and and this is really very applicable to the uh to the uh, stress that comes from from uh from uh, climate change which is the trauma i mean the adults are traumatized uh the children are traumatized the families are traumatized so my i think what head start what we're trying to do now is um actually make the local organ the local programs trauma-informed organizations groups that can really uh and and I think that will go to uh making better relationships and that will go to uh, um just normalizing now as a band-aid what we have done at NHSA realizing that that everything has been upset actually by COVID we have, um, and I'm again saying it's a band-aid, we're trying to normalize the mental health by providing the mental health access to mental health intervention to everybody who works in Head Start and to their families, their children over 18. Uh, because, and But as I say, our ultimate goal is to get a very much a... Um, people who are informed about dealing with trauma because that would that will uh, i think be helpful in the um in in the case of climate change as well thank you guys so much for these questions and answers i'm, I'm just learning a lot from this um derek it sounds like you have a new question for uh lois again building on elizabeth's question thanks so much um to all of you this has been incredible and um Lois gave me a short answer in the chat. Maybe I could broaden the question a little bit and just ask each of you um, or whoever wants to weigh in. You know, my organization is very involved in um, the criteria necessary to make sure that investments related to climate change are um, directed to the most vulnerable areas. And I don't think we spend enough time acknowledging the overlay between the presence of um, of children in the early years, as well as their caregivers, in that um, in that respect, and 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 then cl climate resilience. Everyone mentioned climate resilience and adaptation, and it seems like we should broaden the definition of, of that very critical term that's driving a lot of interest to include some of these concepts um, that you all are raising today. And so, I I don't mean for that to be more of a comment than a question, but I'm I'm kind of curious uh, whether that has gotten any traction in the circles that you all are in and whether um, both in my role with Environmental Defense Fund and also my role on this task force can be supportive in that um, if you think it's a good idea. It's a great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, please, how do we do more of it? Um, I think a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is um, exactly as you're pointing out, I think there's two different audiences we're talking to. One is about the folks who come from the early care and education field traditionally and sort of how does 
climate change connect to what you do every day and how we care about outcomes for kids. Um, and I think there's a set of messages there. And I think there's a related and different set of messages for folks who come at this from the kind of climate change side um, and are starting to understand uh, just more about children's development and how the effects of climate change will be part of it. Um, I can offer, I guess, just an, uh, as one idea, um, I think we historically have, or over the last decade, we've found that uh, helping people understand the science of child development and really understanding how things like climate change as a source of adversity get in and actually influence you under the skin, really uh, like actually impact at a biological level and being able to explain that story to folks. Uh, it just, it opens up this black box of child development in a way that folks can start to understand how development really is this combination of kind of genes and environments and timing. And it's not just this like, I don't know, magic happens, kids turn out fine. Like, you know, we actually have, by influencing the conditions and environments around children, that that's where we have control and can help uh, lead to, to better outcomes. Um, and the science is pretty compelling, I think, actually, around how the effects of climate change are, there are very unique and distinct impacts to it when you, when that happens in those first couple of years of life in a way that's very different than when we experience those same things later in life. So I haven't found yet a lobby that's against children. <laughs> Everyone's in support of children um, in a different way than some other issues. So anyways, I, I, I think the science can be helpful and there's a whole lot of also work around um, just framing, you know, and sort of how, which, which of these aspects talk about and what metaphors to use that we're right in the midst of trying to figure out and um, doing the research around how to pair the science with that kind of right messaging metaphors um, to be able to talk about it. But anyways, I, I really appreciate your question. And I think um, that's one one idea towards it. Yeah, that's great. Any other panelists want to weigh into it before we go to the next question? Um, Angie, uh, you have a question for Sarah and or Yasmina. Yeah, thank you. So um, this may be a little bit of a leading question, but in the work that we do at the Low Income Investment Fund, we find that ECE is often not systematically included in how we build communities, um, particularly from like a government perspective around community development and planning. And so I was wondering if you thought that programs that either combine their funding sources, um, you know, with childcare or with schools, um, or they co-locate, for example, with affordable housing or with schools are better off because they're more integrated into sort of the community infrastructure and then also for, for Sarah, just thinking like, where are counties on this? Like, we feel like there's a long way for counties and cities to go in terms of thinking about this. And, you know, what can we do to ensure that ECE is more solidly part of the infrastructure of how we build and maintain and protect our communities? Happy to start with the kind of latter end of the question and go up from there and then pass it to you. Yes, I mean, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts here, so I'll try to be quick. One, I think that, um, you know, Angie, to your question about how do we get cities and counties more invested in, in early childhood and making the connection, I do think just being somewhat, you know, relatively new and a fresh pair of eyes in county government coming from state government is I think there's this feeling like just like other things that get handled by the state or federal government that are not um, local and county uh responsibilities. I think there's an assumption like, oh, somebody else is taking care of this. And that's a lot of pushback that I get of like, 
this isn't, you know, the county's role. I'm lucky to be in a county where there's other strong voice, elected voices who said, yes, it is. But I think part of that has just been a fundamental misunderstanding. Like, well, actually nobody is tasked with making sure young children are, are cared for or served uh, in this systemic way or in any sort of universal way. Um, so one, I think just there has to be some basic, I'm not normally for knowledge building uh, as kind of the solution, but I do think there is some basic knowledge building around um, early childhood. And yes, I do think that make, finding ways to make childcare more visible, whether that's co-location or, or having counties or cities invest in the physical structure um, is really helpful. I think to dominant things in our society like government, which are still you know these very normative institutions, it is very invisible infrastructure. And I think that finding ways to make childcare more visible in communities and its role more visible in communities other than the kind of it helps people go to work um, standard line is very important there. Thank you, Yasmina. And, and just to add, um, having, having actually seen many, many Head Starts in schools, in housing, um, the, the answer, I hate to say it, but it's it's the devil is in the detail. It's what that collocation actually entails and how it's structured. I think the inclusion in broader plans, I remember um, shadowing when I was at the Kennedy School, shadowing the mayor of Somerville, who was this very, very sharp, progressive man all day. And he was happily showing me all the plans that they had Early childhood was absolutely nowhere. There were all the big stores. There were everything else. So, so I think being included more um, intentionally and thoughtfully um, in community planning, yes, in terms of um, makeshift, although I do agree also with Diana that you need leaders who are going to think cross-sectors. We've, we've had people who have you know, worked so well with our housing authorities and, and, and have successful programs there or, or, or with schools. So it's, it's uh, maybe the, the task force can sort of come with the sort of the, the, the criteria, the conditions, the, the description of elements that, would, that it would take to make this kind of uh, planning uh, really, you know, with good long-term results. Thank you so much. Diana, you had a great question. Yeah, recognizing we're almost out of time. I, you know, I think we, we um, this has been really, really rich. I'd love to just ask the panelists in a like lightning round for the next three minutes to just, what do you think are some of the unique strengths of early childhood that can help with our sector, that can help um, actually um, help in the race to pre prepare for, for climate change? What should we be like, leaning into in early childhood? And I really would love each of you to answer it. If you, Corey, if you want to start and we'll just take us a, a second for each four of you to, to give us a, a very, very brief answer. Oh my gosh, there's so many. <laughs> Better summarize my thoughts quickly. Um, let's see, anything for the sector. I think the things that come to mind first is, um, there's a field that cares deeply about outcomes for children and families. And I think the we practice it every day in the work in the in the sector of early care and education, but that's where the passion comes from. And that's talking about climate change is going to affect that deeply. So we're great advocates and able to explain and bring that passion 
we bring a science base actually about why this matters and how this will influence child development, which is also persuasive. Um, and then I think that there is, um, there's just some, I mean, let me pause there. Okay, I, I might come back at the end with one last thought, but those are the first top first two. Thanks, Sarah? Sure, I would say relationships and just the willingness to be a node for your community of families. I think that could be expanded into making childcare kind of a node as it is, as well as Head Start and other early learning providers, um, a center for their community. Families need will need some connection to information, et cetera, as things go forward. I think childcare is very well positioned to do this. And then I'll just say really quickly, I think the entrepreneurial spirit, unlike some of our uh, more institutionalized education partners, I think uh, young ch uh, child care providers, head start providers are not sort of saying that's not my job or that's not my lane. There's a, a willingness to to recognize what needs to be done for children and families and, and do it, even if it may not be the most natural next, you know, they might not be the best person to do it. They are the only person they recognize that. That's great. Yasmina? I think the opportunity to make children, the stewards, they're such willing, um, passionate uh, people to, and to make them the stewards of the environment, to make them really uh, caring about it. I know some of our some of our garden grants are getting kids in uh, on reservations to be planting native plants to be just, I, I think kids are very easily um, influenced. And so we should do, you know, a better job just getting everybody uh, into uh, the appreciation for, for, for the world, for the, the climate, for the nature. Great. Thank you. Lois? Only thing I can think of is it's got to be relationship and communication. Uh, climate change is changing every year, every year, every year. And we, we as individuals, as, as professionals, as child care providers, as pa uh, parents, families, extended families, we all got to be on one accord and we got to be able to be in a place and and this uh, climate change where we can all get through it. We can all have the necessary resources and we can move forward from that. It's all about adjusting. We have to adjust. We're resilient people. So we we, we know that part of it. Um, but it's just like unity. We just it, everything's just kind of like together. As a, and when you missing one piece of the puzzle, but once that puzzle comes together, everything is together and everybody, I'd say, be on one page and it helps now with the chaos and makes life a little bit easier for all of us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to um, Corey, uh, Sarah, to Yasmini, Yasmina and Lois for your comments and for your and your for your responses. Um, Antoine. No, thank you guys so much. We appreciate the, what, what has been shared today. I think it was enlightening for everyone and really appreciate looking forward to some of the next stuff we're going to do. So thank you for joining us today. Um, this is the end of our public session. The next public listening session of the early years climate action task force will be on Monday, January 9th, 2023 at 12 PM <laughs> Eastern time. Have a great afternoon. The Early Years Climate Action Task Force will hold a series of listening sessions highlighting the particular vulnerabilities of young children to climate change and opportunities for the early years sector to take action. The next public listening session will be held on January 9, 2023. During this session, the task force will focus on the question, how can investments in early childhood help communities build resilience to climate change? And will be available to listen by podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
as well as capita.org and thisisplaneted.org.